Amen. Oh, this morning we begin to look at a subject that we don't really like to talk about in churches. And in particular, we don't like to talk about in churches in the west of Scotland. This morning we begin to look at the subject of money. And we've never really spoken on this subject since I arrived here some two years ago, and we don't intend to speak on this subject regularly, but as it's the first time that we're approaching this together in our collective journey, we begin by laying a bit of a biblical foundation that we can build upon and introduce the general principles of the Scripture with regards to giving. Now, money is a bit of a touchy subject in church circles. Whenever we talk about it, we kind of squirm. You can't see the view that I've got, so as soon as we said money, it was fascinating to see the reaction across the room. We kind of squirm and we feel uncomfortable. It's almost a bit like the elephant in the room. And normally when we come to look at this subject, there are loads of stats thrown out in preaching, like about the number of verses that there are in Scripture that talk about giving Things, claims that Jesus spoke more about money than about anything else, that the majority of his parables focus on money. And do you know what? The Bible does mention a lot about money. Jesus did speak a lot about money, but I don't really think he spoke about that more than he did anything else. His parables did often reference money, but that was more for illustrative purposes than him giving people financial advice. In fact, the stats, if you really want them, are that 11 out of 39 parables reference money, 18 out of 39 reference food. I'm all right with that. But actually, the point that we try to make is that we need to approach this subject in a grounded and pragmatic way, letting the Scripture speak for itself and building a healthy understanding on the matter. Because giving is important in ministry. Paul actually calls it out in his teaching in the New Testament. In fact, if we're to be absolutely blatant, Paul pretty much calls out that for church to be church, it requires money. In Galatians 6, verse 6, he says, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. 1 Timothy 5, he talks about those that serve in ministry within the church. and, And he says, the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves its wages. As well as this, Paul instructs that money should be given to support the vulnerable, to support the poor. Money should be given to support widows with no family. In fact, he even talks at one point about the New Testament churches supporting the church that's based in Jerusalem because it's in a place of financial hardship. He mentions elsewhere that missionary endeavors in the name of the gospel should be supported, as well as those that pastorally care for other people. In other words, Paul says that the teaching, preaching, caring, ministry, and mission of the church will all cost money. And it's the duty of the church to resource itself. And as we say that, we have to recognize that there is a spiritual dynamic and principle by which that resourcing is accomplished. And as we begin to journey into that, we have to start on the right foot. And here's how we frame the call to giving scripturally and properly. Our starting point is actually Romans 12 verse 1, which says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I know what you're thinking. There is nothing in that verse about cash. It doesn't mention money or giving 
at all. Rather, the command is about offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, don't worry. We're not into human sacrifices here. We're not about to bring out the naked virgin to be slaughtered on the altar. That's not the point of the text. The point that has been made here is that we should bring all that we are, which therefore includes all that we have, into the worship of God. Every facet of who we are, everything that we have is to be involved in the task of worship. And that brings us naturally to the conclusion that worship isn't just what we do on a Sunday. Rather, our worship should be seen in everything that we do Sunday to Sunday. Worship isn't just an event. It is an event because we come together like this to do worship. We come together to worship together as an event. But it's not just an event. It's a lifestyle. In fact, according to Romans 12, when we bring everything that we are to God, it brings Him pleasure. All-out surrender, the unreserved giving of ourselves is, and we quote from the passage, holy and pleasing to God. And we'd not be wrong in translating that then as it's, it's what evokes the joy of God. And not only that, it's described as being a spiritual act of worship. This thought is backed up in Ephesians 5, verse 8 and 10, where it says, live as children of the light and find out what pleases the Lord. As children of God, our duty is to discover what pleases God, to discern what evokes and brings Him joy, and then begin to live that out in our everyday. In fact, we read this, and we can read this statement as a command, but in actual fact, it's an invitation. We are invited to discover and explore. We are to find out what it is that he loves. And upon discovery of that, we are to pursue it and make it our everyday lifestyles. And that brings us quite naturally to a very important hinge point. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, before we begin to get all caught up and focus on the amount stuff, we actually focus on an important principle. These verses call out very directly something that God loves, something that he takes delight in, something that brings him pleasure and brings him joy. And that's a cheerful giver. So here's our big point. A joyful giver gives joy to the joy giver. Turn to the person next to you and say, a joyful giver gives joy to the joy giver. Turn to the person on the other side and say, if he asks me to turn to a person one more time and say something, I'm going to slap him. <laughs> this is a bit of a tongue twister, and to be honest, it's for a bit of fun that we worded it the way we worded it, but actually it is quite important. What these verses present to us are two hearts, two hearts experiencing the same emotion and attribute, joy. And the action that connects those two is giving. God is presented to us here as loving something. The word for love is agapeo. And as well as meaning to love, it also means to delight. So there is the presence of joy in this expression of love. We've got God loving something and there's the presence of joy there. 
And then we're also told about the individual, as it were, and the individual is cheerful, so there's the presence of joy there as well. And what causes both hearts to exist within the same attribute is giving. So we dial back before we get into the giving aspect and we land on this thought for a moment. We find joy in that which brings God joy. And when we begin to discover and explore what brings him joy, that same joy that is evoked in his heart is replicated within ours. His joy is manifest within us when we embrace that which brings him joy. And one of the things that brings him joy is when his children give. And when his children give freely, positively, willingly, when his children give out of a desire to bring him pleasure, why? Why does the act of giving evoke his joy and replicate the same in our hearts? Well, that's because when we give, we actually reflect the heart of God. God is a giving God. And the scripture is full of examples of this. God so loved the world that he gave his son. The Father delights to give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him, Jesus says. The Old Testament tells us he gives wisdom to those who ask and he gives the heart's desires to those who delight in him. He gives peace to his children, but not as the world gives. He says that if we ask him, it will be given to us because every good and perfect gift is from him. Coming down from heaven from the Father of light. So if every gift is from him, then it means that he is a giving God and he gives as a demonstration of his heart and as an expression of his love. And when his children begin to give of themselves as he does so freely to us, then we begin to reflect his heart and we evoke his joy. God is a giving God and his children are called to give like he does. To give of ourselves to the poor to give of ourselves to each other, to give of ourselves in worship, to give of ourselves for the least, the last, and the lost, to give of ourselves for our city, to give of ourselves for his kingdom and his advancement upon planet earth. And that's the big spiritual headlines, but here's another one. We're called to give of ourselves with our finances too. And Philippians says this, I've received full payment and have more than enough I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Paul here is talking to the church in Philippi about their financial and practical giving, and we know it's not just material gifts that he's referencing here because he talks about a full payment. So he's obviously referencing financial giving too. And look at how he describes their giving. He says, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. It's interesting that Paul describes financial giving in the same way that he describes a spiritual act of worship. And two things come out of this. When we talk about giving our everything to God, engaging all that we are and all that we have in the worship of Him, well, that includes our finances too, doesn't it? And secondly, that must mean that, that our financial giving is an actual fact, an act of worship. And you know, sometimes in the business of services, there can be times when we kind of forget about the offering. You might not notice it, or maybe you do, but there can be times when we get to the end of the service and I look out and stewards are frantically waving grey baskets at me 
to tell me that I've forgotten to lift the offering. And there have been times in church circles, and I know this would never be the case here because you guys are so super spiritual. But there have been times in church circles when we have the mindset of, let's lift the offering and get it out of the way so we can go on with the spiritual worshipy stuff. But you know what? In actual fact, in God's eyes, that offering moment is a spiritual moment. And in actual fact, that offering moment is an act of worship. So as we begin to transition our thinking on this, we also then need to begin to transition our practice on this and begin going forward from this Sunday onwards. We are going to lift our offering during our worship as opposed to that awkward moment at the end of the service. Because if this is an act of worship, then we should position it as such by giving of our finances during the moment that we are collectively engaging in worship and positioning financial giving as an, an expression and an extension of worship. I know what you're thinking. That's lovely, but I give by standing order. Well, and when we're lifting it in worship, recite your sort code and account number. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> like, as you set up your standing order, put a worship CD on the background. Right? No, but the point I'm trying to make is... This act of giving is an act of worship. And so we begin to position it as that. But the bigger question is, well, why? Why is it? Why is that viewed as an act of worship? And that's because our giving comes out of our hearts and not out of our pockets. Second Corinthians 9 verse 7 says this, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. The giving is linked to the decision of the heart. Exodus 25 verse 2 says, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You're to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. The giving has come from the prompting of the heart. Exodus 35 says in verse 20, then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting for all its service and for the sacred garments. This financial giving, this offering, came out of the movement of the heart. Scripture links the giving of the offering to the giving of the heart. The giving of our finances is linked to an expression and a decision of the heart. And in the same way that God's giving reveals and expresses His heart, then it turns out that our giving reflects our hearts. And it's God's joy to give to us it's his joy. He delights in giving to us. And when we begin to give of ourselves back to him and reflect his heart, then we bring the heart into the experience of his. We bring the heart into an experience of joy. There is joy in giving. Let's transition this by turning in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 1. It says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. 
So we urge Titus, just as he'd earlier made the beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Paul talks here about the Macedonian church, and he says that they have endured real trials and real difficulties, but even so, they have given out of what they had, even though they existed in extreme poverty. And again, we know that this giving is not just material giving, it's financial giving, and we know that because it's mentioned as generosity, but also their financial situation is mentioned. They're in extreme poverty, but yet they they give. So the inference here is that there's some financial giving. As we drill down on the context or the content of this text, we, we notice how he describes that they give. He said that they gave of themselves first, and then they gave to us. The inference there is then he gave, they gave financially. Very often in church circles when we talk about giving, we tend to focus on one or the other. We either focus on the finances because it's all about the money, or we focus on giving in terms of time and resources because we don't really like to talk about the money. But what this text teaches us is that both are necessary. You can't do one properly without the other. In other words, it's not okay to just give your money and assume that since you've given your dosh and paid your membership fees, that someone else can go on with the job and the task of ministry. But equally, you can't say, well, I give plenty of my time and plenty of my resources, so they ain't getting a bean of cash out of me because I give enough of myself already. When it comes to giving, both are as important. It's important that we give of our money, but it's also important that we give of our time and our energy and our resources, and we give that to see the kingdom of God released and advanced. In the Macedonian context, in verse 4, we read of the money being given in service of the Lord's people. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 to 4, Paul becomes passionate about raising money for the church in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem church is the mother church. It's the Acts 2 church. It's the church from which all other churches were birthed. It's because of this church and its ministry that people have heard the gospel and experienced grace. But the mother church at the heart of the New Testament is poor. So Paul encourages the other churches to give, and here's another important principle. The Gentile churches have experienced grace, and that experience of grace requires nothing in return, but having experienced grace, they are so full of gratitude, they're so full of thanksgiving, their hearts are so moved that it prompts them to give. They give of themselves, and they give financially, but that giving is rooted and flowing out of their hearts. They bring all of that to us sitting here some 2,000 years later. Grace has been lavished into our lives. And you know what? That grace requires nothing in return. We call that out right now. The experience of God's grace requires nothing in return. He gives it to us freely because he's God. The ministry that we receive from, from church or others requires nothing in return. But it should motivate us to give of who we are and what we have to God in his work. And this is why Paul says in verse seven, since you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in love that we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. As you've been transformed by grace, 
Let the overflow of your heart and thanksgiving and love and earnestness and knowledge and all that stuff, let it also be seen in the giving of yourself, both who you are and what you have. And in our church, we believe in giving. And we believe in giving of what we have and who we are. And we believe in the giving of what we have through the act of tithing. Tithing is a principle that we see throughout Scripture in both Old and New Testaments. And the tithe is a term that's used to denote the giving of one-tenth of what we have. That's what the word means. Abram was the first example of tithing in Genesis 14 and verse 20. If you remember, he gave one-tenth of the blessing that he'd received from the defeat of the four kings, and he presented this tithe to the priest king Melchizedek, and in doing so, he gave it to God. And while we see example of this and even specific teaching on this in the Old Testament, and we're going to come to that in a moment, But before we dive into that, we need to ask the question, is is tithing an Old Testament principle? Does it apply to those of us who are living under grace in the New Testament age? And the answer to that question is found in a statement that Jesus made in Luke 11, 42. He said, woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. 